This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. Often I find what propels a poem is some attempt to push past or move through or beyond what seems or is easy to accept as true to reach some greater, hopefully truer, state of complication. Hello, and welcome to the Poetry Society podcast. I'm Andre Bagu, one of the guest co-editors of the summer 2022 issue of the Poetry Review. On today's episode, we feature Jameson Fitzpatrick, who has five poems in the issue. Jameson Fitzpatrick is the author of Pricks in the Tapestry, published by Birds LLC in 2020, a 2017 NYSCA-NYFA Fellow in Poetry, She is a clinical associate professor in the expository writing program at New York University. Hello, Jameson. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. I think it would be nice to start the podcast with a poem. So perhaps you could read Entre Nous Voice. Entre Nous Voice. I hate the poem I wrote you. Every time I read it, I wonder if I should have kept the dash where I replaced it with a comma, feeling, as a good teacher once warned, that my habitual overuse of dashes diminished their effect. And also that in that poem, where I put that comma, I didn't want precision, but a sense of being provisional, of thinking in real time, though I in fact changed the dash back and back again over and over until it was published. I hate that comma, just as in the next poem I wrote you, I hate the word place for making me wonder if I should have said bridge. I hate the comma and the place, not because they're wrong, but because I have to wonder if I was when I reread the poems, the first of which I do not infrequently, because it is one that travels, which is the reason I hate it, because though it travels, you do not live in it or through. It is less like a window than a telescope, on the other side of which you move further and further from me. Scintilla, apostrophe, speck with tail. I saw that teacher recently, coming or going from a classroom in the basement where I, too, teach. I wanted to say hello, but didn't. So much has happened since. Jameson, thank you so much for that. Thank you again for inviting me and asking me to read it, Andre. So I want to start with something that's actually mentioned in this poem, and it is that sense of being provisional and the role that that plays in perhaps all of the poems featured in the issue, particularly discursive voice. So the poem you've just read for us is a palinode, which is a poem in which the poet retracts a view or sentiment expressed in a former poem. But here the retraction is in real time almost. How important 
is a sense of contingency to your poetics. What does this idea of an inner discourse or dialogue mean to you? It's sort of everything. Or maybe that's overstated. Even there in what I just said, that was qualification and adjustment to better get at the thing. That's, I think, poetry's primary function for me, a way of better getting at the thing or trying to, whatever the thing may be. Often I find what propels a poem is some attempt to push past or move through or beyond what seems or is easy to accept as true to reach some greater, hopefully truer state of complication. And that is a process that doesn't really end. It doesn't finish just because I finish a poem. The possibility that I can always in the future write a retraction or correction or complication is almost what enables me to write any poem ever. Yeah, because there's a safety there in that knowledge that, well, okay, if I say something wrong, I can take it back, I can erase it. And it's also like multifocality of investigation and interrogation almost. And speaking of multivocality, the poems in the 2022 summer issue from you are actually extracts from several voices or moods within a much larger project. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that project. I'm going to do my best. It always comes out more complicated than I think it is. You can always retract later. (laughs) I'm working on a book called The Marshallin, which takes its title from a character in the 1911 Strauss and Hoffmannsthal opera, De Rosenkavalier. The Marshallin is a married noblewoman in 18th century Vienna who is having and then ending an affair with a younger lover, Octavian. And Octavian is traditionally also sung by a woman in a pants part. The opera is technically a comedy, but its central drama, as I see it anyway, is really the Marshallin reconciling herself to the fact of aging and, by extension, of mortality. As written, she's like me, only in her early 30s, though she's been sung by many sopranos older than that. But that detail is important because the crisis she faces isn't really that she is old, but that she understands she will be old in a way the young simply can't comprehend. She says at the end of the opera, there are many things in the world you wouldn't believe to hear tell of them. Only those who experience believe and can't explain. So I started writing what became this book Two years ago, I was 31, in the months leading up to my decision to begin hormone replacement therapy, what I was working through during that time, both in and outside of writing, had, I felt, a lot in common with what the Marshallin has to confront in the opera. First, the sheer awareness that experience and opportunity and our portion of time, if not time itself, are all finite. And second, that the possibility of being a beautiful young woman was no longer on the table, so to speak. Of course, that 
Anxiety is for both of us in different ways, informed by sexism, by misogyny, and the value ascribed to being a beautiful young woman in a sexist, misogynist culture. Susan Sontag published an excellent essay on this in 1972 called The Double Standard of Aging, in which she discusses the Marshallin, which I'd totally forgotten, and I was rereading this essay the other day. And I was like, oh my god, it's all there. The Marshallins is one of many voices in this book. My own translations of passages from Hugo von Hofmannsthal's libretto. But there's also a Wendy Darling voice, a mirror voice, some versions of Sappho's fragments on aging. And as I'm imagining it anyway, all these voices are woven together. And I almost don't think of them as having titles per se. I think more of those designations as specifying which character is speaking almost in a script. It's really wonderful how in your work intertextuality is a key feature, but it's not just intertextuality for, you know, the sake of intertextuality. There's a clear personal texture. One of the reasons why I was drawn to that form was because I was really interested in writing something auto-bibliographic, thinking about the art I've loved throughout my life that has really informed who I am and the characters and stories who've shaped my character and my story. I suppose I should also say that Rosen Cavalier, the opera, is of particular significance in my own life. My paternal grandmother, who was a high school English teacher and a poet, was my guide to a lot of art and culture in my early childhood. She loved the opera. When we were visiting on a weekend, she'd put on the Saturday afternoon broadcast from the Metropolitan Opera, and she'd explain the stories to me. She and my grandfather died when I was nine. And a year later, my aunt, her youngest daughter, took me to see my first opera at the Met, and that was Rosen Cavalier with Renee Fleming singing the Marshallin. So it's a, this in particular is a text and a story and a character that has been with me for a long time, well in advance of this particular book. It's really amazing how that personal circumstances really dictate which pieces of art end up being within our wheelhouse, so to speak. And anyone who's familiar with your work would be aware of your love of art generally. And there's a lot of intertextuality and there are a lot of musicians in your writing from Joni Mitchell to Alanis Morissette, Fiona Apple and so on. So I wanted to ask then, is music also a part of your creative process? Absolutely. I kind of struggle with silence, although I've been attempting to meditate and change that relationship to silence a little bit more recently. But I typically listen to music while I'm working. There's a long The Marshallin playlist that has all kinds of things on it. Uh, Chopin, Respighi, recordings Anne Sexton made with her band in the late 60s, Nina Simone, Liz Fair, the wonderful actress and filmmaker Theda Hamill, who makes music under the name Ham. And of course, I often put on the opera Rosen Cavalier as well. Usually, I'm listening to the Munich recording with Renee Fleming or an old 1933 recording from Vienna with Lada Lehmann, who was considered the first great 
Marshallin. And that I actually have on vinyl. It was my grandmother's record. So more of that tradition or heirloom sort of quality. I'm actually beginning to get a Desert Island Discs vibes (laughs) right now. And, you know, when you first sent me these selections from this work, I was really struck by the fact that there's a delicate ecology of how each voice is different, yet somehow they coalesce thematically. And when me and Richard Scott, who's my fellow guest editor of the Summer Issue, when we were trying to figure out, well, which ones to publish and which ones not to, I just felt strongly that we had to sample something from each voice as much as possible. And uh, I felt that there was this, almost a story emerging from their variegation. I'm wondering about your approach to sequences and collections. You know, you are the author of Pricks in the Tapestry, which is an incredible collection, which is not just, you know, a collection or a coterie of poems. It actually seems to revolve, for me, around a really substantial, long poem sequence about your Uncle Christopher. I was wondering if you could tell me, how did that collection come together? Really rather by accident. I did my MFA very young, right out of college. And I wrote a totally different first book, which remains unpublished. And I, you know, sent around everywhere. And for a couple of years after grad school, I was feeling sort of a crisis of confidence and that first unpublished book got close, but, you know, it never made it. And in that time, I started writing new poems after a silence that were quite different. I'd become friends with a lot of young poets with very different influences and poetic priorities, a lot of people coming from more experimental traditions. But it was really only maybe even in 2017 that I stepped back and said, huh, Maybe all of these different, somewhat weirder poems I've been writing are of a piece. And that's really when I started to play around with putting them together. My very dear friend and roommate, the wonderful poet Elisa Gonzalez, took my manuscript and organized it into different kind of thematic clusters. And I sort of built out the sections that ended up being in the book from her groupings. It sort of follows a not particularly narrative trajectory, but I hope there's a trajectory. The first section is sort of poems about childhood and how the past is informing, forming the present. The second is my sort of sex and death section. The third is that long poem, which is also an essay-ish and which features my mother's annotations And then the last section is about being in the world and trying to turn out a little further from the personal history to think about the larger contexts in which that history exists and is shaped. This book I'm working on now, very different process. I realized that there was this concept or this project, a word I don't love, but I'll use pretty early on. One of the things I've been working through as I've been writing it, and this has to do with this multivocal or polyphonic form as well, is that it is in many ways a transition book. It's a kind of record of this particular time in my life. But I 
am very aware of the sort of trans memoir trap. Here I am spilling my trans guts for a cis audience, you know, in the hope that humanity will be extended to me, which is definitely a very dominant form for reasons that I don't hold against any individual authors, but it's something that I really wanted to resist. So I've been trying to create this kind of record of a time, but tell it slant, going back to Dickinson, um, and use these voices and appropriated language and various personas to try to torque that a little bit. And speaking of Emily Dickinson, I think in past conversations, you have mentioned admiring poets like Maria Sviteva. And on social media, you speak to a wide range of literary interests. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the specific poetic influences behind these poems in The Summer Issue? I do love Marina Svetaiva's work. I should admit that I do not speak any Russian, and every Russian-speaking poetry reader I've ever encountered has insisted that she is particularly lost in translation, maybe one day or in another life. But I also have a lot of novelistic influences and in this book in particular there's two Wendy Darling voices in this issue I think I mentioned one of them steals a phrase from Marguerite Duras the lover it's actually the phrase that opens that book one day I was already old and in her book that sentence goes on at some length and a whole kind of scene and situation is described in the other Wendy Darling voice there is a kind of homage to uh, Sigrid Nunez's A Feather on the Breath of God, which is one of my favorite novels, one of my favorite books of any genre of all time. At the end of the book, the narrator is asked, why did you go with this man? And that second Wendy Darling voice begins, why did you go with him? Picking up my own version of that question and attempting to answer it. You know, definitely going back to the sense of the discursive voice within your writing, that too is one of the great traditions of the novel. Is there a Jameson Fitzpatrick novel coming soon? Fingers crossed. Let's hope so. There should be, whether it's a novel, memoir, whatever it is, it's just objectively great, your writing. So the poems in the 2022 summer issue, they are not actually your first appearance in the Poetry Review. Your poem, I Woke Up, as it then was, also appeared in the spring 2017 issue of the magazine. But that poem later became one of the opening poems in your 2020 collection under a new title, The Last Analysis, or I Woke Up. This poem is one of my favorite poems of all time. I've written about it elsewhere. And I was just wondering, for the sake of my own selfishness, if you would honor us by reading it. I should say that as part of its exploration, there is strong language in this poem. Thank you. I would be happy to, and I'm very touched by your kind words about this poem. The Last Analysis, or I Woke Up. And it was political. I made coffee, and the coffee was political. I took a shower and the water was. I walked down the street in short shorts and a Bob Miser tank top, and they were political, the walking and the shorts and the beefcake silkscreen of the man posing in a G-string. 
I forgot my sunglasses. And later, on the train, that was political, when I studied every handsome man in the car. Who I thought was handsome was political. I went to work at the university, and everything was very obviously political, the department and the institution. All the cigarettes I smoked between classes were political, where I threw them when I was through. I was blonde, and it was political. So was the difference between blonde with and without an E. I had long hair, and it was political. I shaved my head, and it was. That I didn't know how to grieve when another person was killed in America was political, and it was political when America killed another person, who they were and what color and gender and who I am in relation. I couldn't think about it for too long without feeling a helplessness like childhood. I was a child, and it was political, being a boy who was bad at it. I couldn't catch, and so the ball became political. My mother read to me almost every night, and the conditions that enabled her to do so were political. That my father's money was new was political, that it was proving something. Someone called me a faggot, and it was political. I called myself a faggot, and it was political. How difficult my life felt relative to how difficult it was, was political. I thought I could become a writer, and it was political that I could imagine it. I thought I was not a political poet, and still my imagination was political. It had been. This whole time, I was asleep. What I've always been drawn to in this poem, among other things, is its wonderful wryness. On the one hand, there's this sort of lampooning of the over-analytical, the over-academic, the over-politicization of experience. But yet on the other hand, the poem is dead serious, incredibly sincere about the truth or the truths that it speaks to. And it's the way the poem accommodates those seemingly diametrically opposed positions that becomes for me incredibly gratifying and it serves as a strong reminder I think of what a poem can do which is it can reconcile the seemingly irreconcilable. All of that is just to say how did this poem come about? Tell us about that. I wrote this poem in the days immediately following the Pulse shooting in Orlando, Florida in June 2016. The next day or two days after, I found myself on a week-long residency at Kaikut, which is a Rockefeller estate a little bit north of New York City. It's a very beautiful manor with beautiful grounds and all these very well-planned and maintained gardens and, and sculpture. It's obviously also a site of extreme wealth and therefore a place of perhaps a moral compromise as well. So it was a very strange place to be, very alone and not in community immediately after. But before I left, I was really struck by 
how differently that horrible, horrible news had affected me and the straight people I was living with at the time, who, of course, acknowledged it, but did not, you know, seem shaken in a a deep way and, and didn't seem to be mourning in the way that I was. Although it came to pass that ultimately it seems like this atrocity was not a hate crime necessarily. Um, it's you know entirely possible that the location was sort of chosen at random. It obviously felt like an attack on a community and an attack on Latinx queer community in particular. That was really the catalyst. I, I was thinking about the ways that an event can charge everything but also the ways in which everything already is that way all the time. Like the the charge is more of a difference in feeling or awareness or perception than anything else. And shortly after that shooting were the the police killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile um, in early July 2016. I believe I had already written this poem at that point, but to me, it feels very connected to that moment of protest in New York City. I wrote it very quickly and revised it little. It really did come out of me all of a piece. It's incredibly discursive. And just that last line of the poem, it always, for me, packs such a punch. It demonstrates, again, how poetry can reconcile two contrasting states. You know, that line, it just takes this trope of it was just a dream and it reclaims that and rehabilitates that and it becomes a profound lament. When did that last line come? Did you always know the poem was going to end in this way? I did. That original draft ended that way. I was very interested in trying to say two true things that may be intention. So of course, everything is political. Nothing is outside of politics. I believe that. And I think that that claim is true. But I also think that claim in and of itself doesn't make anything happen. It's just an observation and it can be a helpless one. And I was thinking about that. It was just a dream trope. I really didn't want the end of the poem to read as triumphant or resolved or like anything was fixed or changed by this awareness and to instead try to remind, I don't know, maybe myself most of all, that this statement, this understanding is not action in and of itself, is insufficient unto itself, and that at its worst, it can even be used as a way to sort of make a a claim to a politics or a posture of a certain kind of position that excuses the speaker. I don't know if you've ever read Angela Davis's autobiography. She's quite critical of the women's liberation movement in the 1970s in that book. And she kind of walks this back in her introduction to, I think it's the 1988 edition of the biography. But she talks about how the idea or the slogan of the personal is political really bothered her. She thought it was used to draw false equivalence 
between very different experiences and very different degrees of violence. I had not actually read that book when I wrote this poem, but I remember reading that passage in in the introduction and going, yes, that's it. That's the thing that sometimes makes me queasy about how the fact that everything is political sometimes gets mobilized. Yeah, certainly. And in in this context where everything is so, when societies all over the world are deeply divided and things become quite literally a political football, (laughs) we do in fact lose sight of the substantive, which is what poetry is for, is to remind us and to refocus us. And well, speaking of endings, we are coming to the end of our discussion. Say it isn't so. (laughs) I was actually wondering if you could end this conversation by reading for us the wonderful poem that opens your cluster of poems in this issue, Discursive Voice. I would be happy to. This is Discursive Voice. A pants part in opera refers to a male role written for a female voice. Please forgive the crudeness of the terms in which I've accepted to speak also called a breeches or trousers roll. I prefer pants part because I am a poet writing in English from the German Hosenrolle. Pants parts are most often written for mezzo-soprano or contralto vocal ranges. The characters written as pants parts are most often teenage boys. Their high voices are meant to convey youth, though they need not be played by young women. Der Rosenkavalier's Octavian, sung by a mezzo-soprano, is one of the operatic repertoire's most famous pants parts. If I could choose, I'd be a contralto, as I don't know who I'd be if I weren't deep-voiced. Though I wasn't once, when I was a boy soprano. Though if I were a contralto, I couldn't play the marshalin. To be fair, even if I'd stayed a soprano, to play the marshalin, I would have to have had a still different life. An opera singer's. When I sang most seriously, I preferred smoking and not practicing. I still do, though I smoke less and practice more now that I'm older. In most stage versions of Peter Pan, the role of Peter is a kind of pants part. He won't grow up. Octavian, the audience must imagine, will. When I was a child, I wanted to be anything but. Hence the smoking. Though my imagination stopped there, as though caught in the throat of something. That was Jameson Fitzpatrick reading from the 2022 summer issue of the Poetry Review. I'm Andre Bagu, and thank you for joining us. For more information about upcoming episodes of the Poetry Society podcast, please check the Poetry Society website. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.